Our sermon is taken today from Romans 4, verses 13 to 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherent of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into the existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Saren's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do as he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thus says the Lord. Friends, today we're going to continue in our series through the book of Romans, and we are on the second half of chapter 4 now, okay? And Paul is still in this section of the book out to prove the claim that he's been talking about since chapter 3, and that salvation, that a relationship with God can be ours, this is his claim, salvation and relationship with God can be ours only through faith in God alone, and not by our actions in earning it. Okay, And the Jews that Paul is writing to here, they had a hard time believing in this idea that you can be saved by faith in God alone. Because back then, as many of you know, there was this group of Jews called the Pharisees or or the scribes. Um, The Pharisees and the scribes would say that Paul's way of thinking in the New Testament, uh, that you're saved by faith alone, that is a new way of thinking that breaks from what the Old Testament says. They claim the Old Testament says... We're not saved by faith alone, but by obedience to the law, to the Ten Commandments, to the Mosaic Law. That's how Abraham was saved, they claim. That's how everyone else in the Old Testament was saved, they claim. And that's how we are saved today, by obedience to the Ten Commandments. And and look, they're not the only ones that think this way, are they? Many of us today have a hard time believing in the truth that our obedience, uh, uh, that our salvation is only based through faith by faith alone. A lot of us still believe that our obedience to the law is what saves us. And why do we believe that? Why do we do we think that? I, I want to propose because there's perhaps fear in us. There's fear that if we give in to this idea that we're saved by faith alone, we're, we're scared that we're going to start taking salvation for granted. Right, And that's going to lead us to then neglect God's commandments. That's going to lead us uh, to anger him. And then we're going to end up losing our salvation altogether. And, and, I, and I get that. I totally get that fear. This is, by the way, also the reason why 
So many people from so many other religions get nervous about Christianity. They're scared that if the claim, salvation through faith alone, if that's true, it's going to make people start taking God for granted, which then will lead them towards disobedience, and it's going to make them further away from God. I've heard tons of sarcastic tones thrown my way, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard the same things, perhaps. You know, people saying, oh, you Christians, you, you believe you're saved by faith through grace alone, right? So you can do whatever you want and get away with it. That That's the fear. And, and I get that. I, I get why some people may think this way. And here's an interesting fact. The, the Pharisees who believe that in the New Testament, the group that believe this idea, salvation can only be attained by obedience in the law, they also began because of the same fear. Remember, if you know the Old Testament story, God, at the end of the Old Testament, kicked out his people out of the promised land. Do you remember that? They, God sent Babylon to attack them because of their disobedience, because they were lazy in obeying God's commandments. They got kicked out of God's land. And, and the Pharisees and the scribes and all those groups, the Sadducees, all those groups arose after this event, after Israel was kicked out of the promised land because of their disobedience. Now, think about that. Why do you think these groups would have risen only after Israel got kicked out because of their disobedience? Because they're scared. They're scared. They have the same fear that we have today. If we say salvation by faith alone, that's only going to lead to laziness and that's only going to get us kicked out of salvation, right? And they didn't want history to repeat itself. So they say, you know, you're saved by obedience to the law. You've got to work. You've got to work. It's an idea driven by fear. But as you know today, any relationship that is based primarily on fear, that is glued ultimately by fear, it's a bad relationship. Not only in relation to other people, but also in our relationship with God. So, so Paul here, he's trying to soothe them and soothe us from this fear by showing us that obedience to the law, it can't soothe our fears and anxiety. Actually, it should make us more scared. That's our first point. And also Paul is showing us that obedience to the law will not be weakened by our faith. It's actually a consequence of our internal faith. And then point three, uh, obedience to the law, Paul says, does not earn us God's blessing, but rather it points us to God's grace. Here's Paul's points from this passage. Obedience to God's law should make us more scared is a consequence of our internal faith, and it points us to God's grace. All right? Let's begin in point one. Obeying God's laws should make us more scared. But let me read verses 13 to 14. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. Paul's saying here that his claim of salvation by faith alone, it's not a new way of thinking. It's been this way all along. That's how God's been doing it all along. He's saying the claim that you're saved by obeying the Ten Commandments, that's actually the new way of thinking. That's what makes no sense. Why not? Well, he then appeals to the Old Testament. Here Paul asks, when was Abraham saved? When was Abraham made righteous in the Old Testament by God? You're telling me that 
salvation by obeying the Ten Commandments, that's an Old Testament concept. Okay, when was Abraham saved? And every Jew back then would know that Abraham was saved in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Because it says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's when he was saved, okay? That's when he was counted as righteous by God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And think about it. When did the Ten Commandments come? When did Moses receive the Ten Commandments? In Exodus chapter 20. It's not even the same book. The Ten Commandments came 400 years after Abraham was made righteous in Genesis chapter 15. Think about that. How can Abraham be saved by his obedience to his set of written laws that was not even yet in existence in his lifetime? That makes no sense. This is a whole new complete way of thinking. In fact, Paul continues in verse 15, the Ten Commandments was given in Exodus chapter 20 not to save, but to bring wrath. Look at verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that before Exodus chapter 20, before the law came, God wasn't wrathful or that sin didn't exist. Of course he was, and of course it did. What it means is that when the law came in Exodus chapter 20, sin is now clearly on paper or on stone tablets, I guess, legally documented as a transgression. Transgression is legal language that you broke a law. So you can no longer say, you know, lying feels wrong. But I just don't know for sure if it's wrong or not. It just feels wrong because God never really said anything about it. Well, you can't say that anymore. Here it is, written down on stone tablets. It's wrong. It's clear now. In other words, what the law does, it doesn't just um, prove that we don't deserve salvation. It proves that we actually deserve the opposite of salvation. That's what the law does. It makes it clear that none of us deserve it. You know, it's like you forget to pay your taxes for two years in a row, and then all of a sudden you just remembered it, and then you have this feeling in you, oh, I forgot to pay my taxes. I, I think that's bad. That, that kind of feels bad. And then you read the law, and you see, oh, okay, that wasn't just my feelings. I've actually transgressed a few laws here. I've broken a few laws. There are actually consequences to it. The law brings wrath because when you read it, you see, you see just how much you've transgressed. This is, this is what the law does. It's, it's meant to make you more scared that actually you're not as righteous as you thought you were and all your hunches about whether or not something was good or bad was actually, was actually true. Those things were bad. Remember Abraham? Abraham uh, told his wife in the Old Testament uh, to marry other men twice in order so that those men wouldn't kill him. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, here, please sleep with these other men so that I can save myself. And, you know, God is saying, you feel bad about that, Abraham? You you felt like that wasn't a good thing? (laughs) Good, because it's not a good thing. Here is on paper, on stone tablets, here's what you did. It's wrong. You have legally transgressed my laws. There's no more excuses for your sins, Abraham, or anyone else. That's what the law does. That's why, Paul continues in verse 16, it doesn't depend on the law to be saved. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. 
the law doesn't save. It it doesn't save. If salvation is earned by obeying the Ten Commandments, it doesn't make sense chronologically, Paul is saying, because Abraham was saved before it came. It doesn't fit teleologically, meaning it doesn't fit with the actual purpose of why God gave us the laws. God gave us the laws to show us that we're actually breaking the law, not to save us. And it doesn't work doxologically, meaning if we are saved by obedience to the law, if Abraham was saved by obedience to the law, then the worship, the praise, the glory, the doxology goes to Abraham and his obedience rather than to God and his grace. This idea that salvation can be earned by the obedience to the Ten Commandments, it's a new way of thinking. It's not in the Old Testament, and it's birthed out of fear. That was never the way God intended it to be. He is always intended for salvation to be ours by faith. That is why it depends on faith. Now, before we move on to the second point, let me take some time, because I think it's important, to make this concept of faith more tangible to us. If you have 3G or 4G or 5G now in your phone, I think there's 5G, no? (laughs) If you have that in your phone, you know why you have that? You have that because there is a powerful entity in your phone called a hard drive. And that powerful entity in your phones make your phones connect to and allows your phones to be influenced by phone towers out there, right? That's why your phones have 3G, because of the existence of a powerful entity inside of it called a hard drive that connects it to a, uh, to a phone tower out there. Abraham was saved in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, not because he obeyed the Ten Commandments, but because he had a powerful entity in him called faith. And that powerful entity in him connected him to and allowed his life to be influenced by God's promises out there. That's why Abraham is saved, because of the existence of a powerful entity in him called faith that made him believe and connected him to God's promise out there. That one day, here's a promise, here's what Abraham believed. One day, God will save Abraham, and God will include Abraham into God's kingdom. A kingdom that will be populated with Abraham's own descendants, beginning with Isaac. That's the promise Abraham believed in. That's why in verse 17, Paul quotes what God said to Abraham in the Old Testament, I have made you a father of many nations. You're going to have so many descendants, God is saying. I'm going to populate my kingdom with these descendants, and I'm going to include you in that kingdom. That is my promise. That is your hope of salvation. And that's a big promise. That's a big promise. And the only reason why Abraham was able to believe in that promise, the only reason why Abraham was able to connect with that promise is because in him, there's this powerful entity called faith. That's why he's connected to the promise. The second that faith was installed in him is the very second he connected to God's promise out there. And that is the very second he was counted as righteous by God. He was saved. That's how Abraham was saved. And that's how we today can be saved, Paul is claiming. Not by our obedience to the Ten Commandments, but by having that hard drive, that faith installed in us. 
And, and let me just uh, make the side note. This way of salvation by having faith in us, it's the most inclusive method of salvation possible. As a Christian, I don't know if you've experienced this, but, but I have. Um, when I was uh, uh, younger in my faith, I've always kind of felt a bit embarrassed of the, the Christian's claim of salvation because it, it just sounds so exclusive. Right? We say you only save through faith in Christ alone, that He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one gets the Father but through Him. And, and as a younger Christian, I've always felt so, ex- it felt so exclusive, right? I feel so closed minded. What about people who's never been baptized? What about people who's never been to church? What about people who's never read the Bible? What about them? Can God not save them? And what Paul is trying to tell us here is, is actually the opposite. Salvation by faith alone is actually the most inclusive method of salvation out there because God is made most accessible by anyone through this method. How so? Look at verse 16 again. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. See, other methods of salvation, they can't say the words, not only. That's a very inclusive word, not only. Other methods of salvation can't say that. It's exclusive. Here's what I mean. If you say that salvation is not by faith, if you say that salvation is by obeying a set of laws, then only those who obey those set of laws can be saved. You see, it's very exclusive. What hope is there for the millions of people who fail to obey the laws? Can God not save them? If you say salvation is through circumcision or through baptism, right? Then the only, uh, only those who are circumcised and baptized can be saved. It's very exclusive. What happens to the millions of people who have not been circumcised or baptized? Can God not save them? If you say salvation is gained by any other thing, then only those who do those things can be saved. It's actually all other methods, I would argue, is actually very exclusive. But if you say you're saved because God has installed within you, by grace, a powerful entity called faith, which then connects you to his promise, makes you believe in his promise, makes you trust and rest in his promise of salvation, that one day, from the descendant of Abraham, God will populate a kingdom for himself in which you are invited to. If, if, if that's how you're saved, then quite literally, God can install this faith in whomever he wants, whenever he wants, 400 years before the law was given or 2,000 years after the law was given to us today. It rests solely on God's grace, whomever he would call to himself. It's the most inclusive way of salvation. Now, at this point, the fear that produces legalism, the fear that produces this way of thinking that you're saved by obeying the Ten Commandments, I don't think has quite disappeared yet. I don't think. Some of us may still feel that if it's that easy, if you know, if it's just by faith alone, simply because God installed it in you, then isn't that going to make people faithless? Isn't that going to make people lazy and disobedient? No, it won't. Why not? Let's go to the second point. That external obedience to God's laws is actually the consequence of this internal faith that God has installed in us. It it doesn't weaken it. It is actually the result of it, okay? Point number two. Now, 
After Abraham was given this internal faith, did he become lazy? Did he just somehow now live however the heck he wanted? No. He arranged his whole life according to this promise against all odds. Let's continue in verse 17. And the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. What's Paul talking about here? Well, he's talking about the state of Sarah's womb when God made this promise. You remember that? When God in the Old Testament made this promise to Abraham, right, that his descendants will populate God's kingdom in which Abraham will be included in, when God made that promise, Sarah was way past age, uh, uh, childbearing age. This is what verse 18 means. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. And verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Abraham himself couldn't have kids. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Because if you look at the circumstances, there is no hope for Sarah to produce these uh, offsprings that God said she's going to produce. But Abraham hoped against hope, you see. He believed and he obeyed. And he left everything. He left his father's house. He left his inheritance. He left the military and occupational security that he had in his old country. He left Ur. He obeyed God. He followed God. Why? Because the faith that God installed in him was activating him to do that. It made him believe, verse 17 says, to the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It made him have hope verse 18 says, against all hope. Although the data in the whole world speaks against his promise coming true, he's old, Sarah's old, this faith that God has installed in Abraham made Abraham set his eyes on God's promise that one day, one day, somehow God will give us a child who we later see as Isaac. And this child will be brought forth out of Sarah's dead womb. His faith didn't make him lazy, made him act. It made him risk. It made him trust and obey and, and, and follow God and, and give everything um, to follow God. Now, a quick caveat here. I, I want to be careful. It's easy uh, at this point to think that, oh, okay, what the Bible is saying that is if I just have enough faith to believe something will happen, then against all evidences and data, it's still going to happen. As long as I just believe it's going to happen, it's going to happen. No. That is not what it's saying. This is only true in relation to the specific promise that God made. You can't take this and run with it and say, oh, if I just believe this girl's going to marry me, you know, then against all data and against all evidences out there, against all odds, if I just believe it, it's going to happen. You can't do that. Why? Because that's not the specific promise God made. You can't say, if I just have faith and believe that I'm going to get a raise this year and I'm going to get out of debt this year, if I just believe that strong enough, it's, it's going to happen. Even though the data says otherwise, it's going to happen against all odds. No, you can't do that as, as appealing as, as that is. That wasn't the promise. What will make something happen against all odds is not the power of your faith. It's whether or not God promised it. What Abraham believed in is that against all odds, against all earthly probability, out of Sarah's dead womb, God will populate a kingdom in which he then will be included in. That was the promise. And Abraham's faith in that did not make him lazy. 
it's what gave him the power to put work in. Look at verse 20 to 21. No unbelief made him waver. He didn't waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. You see that? You want to live your life according to God's promise and not waver and, and grow strong in your faith? If you want that, the starting point isn't you trying to obey the law. The starting point is that God first installs in your heart faith that connects you to his promise. And though that faith begins as small as a mustard seed, and though that faith may waver as it's swept to and fro by wild winds, especially in its early years of growth, if you hold fast to it, it will grow strong, stronger than any other tree pampered in a greenhouse. And with it, you will give glory to God. That's how you grow strong in your faith. That's how you put work in with God. Not that It doesn't start by obeying the commandments. It starts by God planting that faith in us. Abraham too failed at first when God planted this faith in him. Oh, remember how Abraham responded to God when he first heard the good news that God will raise this promised child out of Sarah's dead womb? Remember what he did in Genesis chapter 17, verse 16? Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He laughed. That's impossible. God can't raise a baby out of Sarah's dead womb. And not only that, remember after uh, he waited for this promise for a long time, he lost faith and he attempted to procreate through Hagar, right? A younger woman whose womb was not yet dead. Why? Because at that time, Abraham's faith was not strong enough. He tried to earn his salvation out of a method uh, that is apart from God's promise. Uh, he didn't believe Isaac will come out of Sarah's dead womb. So he did something else that made more sense to him. Abraham failed too at first. But the faith that God installed in him, it, it grew stronger and stronger as the winds of doubt kept swept by. And that's what's going to happen with us as well. And, and we're again asking at this point, I think, so this is confusing, Tezar. You're, you're saying that if I, like Abraham, believe that Isaac was brought forth out of Sarah's dead womb and that through, uh, through Isaac, God will populate a kingdom for himself and I'm included in that kingdom. You're saying if I believe in that promise like Abraham did, then that means God has installed in me the saving faith? That means I'm saved, I believe in Isaac and, and all that. And that's a little weird because that sounds more like Judaism than it does Christianity. Is that, is that what we're saying now? Close, but not quite. Okay, so then how can I tell whether or not I have the saving faith? What would I believe in? What is the promise of God that this internal faith connects me to? Okay, let's move on to our last point. I think this should clarify everything. Obeying the law should point us to God's grace. Okay, let's continue verse 23, 24. Here in these verses, all of a sudden, Paul skips a few thousand years. Okay, from, from talking about how God dealt with Abraham and his salvation in the Old Testament back to us in the here and now today. And in verse 23, Paul says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone. In other words, this system of salvation by faith alone didn't just apply to Abraham, verse 24, but for ours also, for our sake also, it will be counted to us who believe. God saving us the same way he saved Abraham back then by putting faith in our hearts that will cause us to believe. In what? 
in Isaac being raised from Sarah's dead womb? No. Look at verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord. And, and you're reading that, and all of a sudden you're thinking, what in the world does Jesus Christ have to do with Abraham and Isaac? Well, they're related. I mentioned it in the liturgy last week. It's not a coincidence that the very first verse in the very first chapter in the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, starts like this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, and, and you read the Old Testament, and you get to this first verse in the New Testament, and all of a sudden, everything makes sense. Who is the promised descendant of Abraham? Through whom God will then populate his kingdom and include you in. Not ultimately Isaac, but Jesus. How can you know then whether or not you're saved? How can you know then whether or not uh, the saving faith has been installed in you by God? Because that saving faith in you is going to cause you to believe not just the fact that Isaac was brought forth out of the deadness of Sarah's womb, but that Jesus Christ was brought forth from the deadness of Jerusalem's tomb. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then that is the proof. That is the proof that God has installed that powerful entity called faith in you. Oh, and the world like Abraham, will fall on its face and laugh at you. The world will tell you it's impossible for God to be a God who gives life to the dead. It'll tell you that there's nothing after death, that the material world is all you can hope for and trust in. But if that powerful entity called saving faith resides in you, you will hope against hope till the end. Oh, you'll fail like Abraham did. You too will doubt and laugh at times. We all have. You'll scoff. We all do. But if God has installed in you the same faith he's installed in Abraham, you will persevere. Not because you're strong. Not because you're able. But according to Philippians chapter 1, because God who begun this good work in you will bring it to completion. And any kind of win of doubt this world throws your way, it'll only cause the roots of that faith-like mustard seed to grow stronger and stronger and stronger as you give glory to God. And you'll sing. You will sing. United with every other person in history that God has saved, regardless of their personal accomplishments in obeying the law, regardless of their race or culture or age, that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Because here in the power of Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, verse 25 says, I will stand. That's what trying to obey God's laws should point us to. 
It should make us realize not only that we don't deserve salvation, but we deserve the exact opposite. But God, despite what all the other data says, against all likelihood, in the most unexpected manner, God gave us hope by sacrificing his one and only son so that he may call you out of the grave like Lazarus. Because he is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Like life in Sarah's womb, like faith in our hearts, and like the resurrection power in his son's dead body. Do you believe in that? If you do, take comfort. As Jesus told Peter in the New Testament, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but your Father in heaven did, and you will hold fast. Praise God, who in grace not only made the promise in Genesis, but also by grace accomplished the promise on that cross, and because of grace installed the faith in our hearts to believe in that promise. Praise God, from whom, through whom, and to whom, all glory, honor, and praise for our salvation belongs. Let's pray. Father, we come to you realizing that from beginning to end, not only from the promise-making or the promise-accomplishing on the cross, and even the ability to have the faith to believe in this promise did not come from our own flesh and blood, but was revealed by you to us. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father calls him. That has been the pattern from Genesis all the way to the New Testament. Let this excite our hearts and make us realize that nothing can pluck us away from your love and that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor future nor any powers or principalities can remove us from the love of the Father that has been proven to us on the cross. O oh, Father, help us grow strong in this faith that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected for our justification and for our deliverance. And though the wind of doubt blows to us, give us a stronger faith that we may find the reasonableness of this biblical worldview and how it points to the glory of you alone. No sermon can put this faith in people. Only you through your spirit can. Would you be so gracious to give the people who are listening to this sermon to your words from Romans chapter 4, verse 13 25? that powerful entity called faith in which no preacher nor hearer can muster up on their own, but only by the gracious gift of you, Father, who has accomplished it by the gracious cross of you, Jesus, um, applied in our hearts by you, O Spirit.
Give us this mercy for our sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.